White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 544. Hello! Welcome to Open Wheel, the White Rocket Formula One and IndyCar occasional podcast. I'm Van Allen Plexico, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Alan J. Porter. Welcome back aboard, Alan. Thank you, Van. It's good to be talking racing again. We've actually got some couple of proper seasons. I mean, we, we had some racing last year, but it all seemed a bit hit and miss. At least this year, we've kicked off two seasons, Formula One and IndyCar. Things seem to be going okay, so let's... Hope it continues and we get two full seasons in. Depending on who you are as a driver, it's been going pretty good, I guess. There's a couple we're going <laughs> to talk about it that haven't been going as well as they might like. Uh, I can think of several, but uh, at least, yeah, it's been very interesting. It's been very uh, competitive. In fact, it's certainly in Formula One more competitive than we've seen in a while. I think the only, you know, ever since the 2016 Rosberg season, this is probably the most competitive that it's yep. been, uh, you know, Vettel, yeah. even, you know, honestly, Alan, even a couple of years ago when Vettel was up there with Lewis, I think we all knew that was just a, a, a phantasm, right? That wasn't going to last. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it is the most competitive season since 2016. So, yeah. 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 And, I, and as I keep saying over and over on Twitter and other places, every year that goes by and nobody really challenges Lewis makes Rosberg look better and better in <laughs> hindsight, because at the time you're like, people are like, "Oh, well, Ros- Rosberg won, but he barely won." And if he could do it, anybody could do it. Whatever. I'm like, well, it's been this is five years now, and he's the only one that's really done it until Max in a good car. So, yeah, yeah, uh, and hopefully the rest of the season will continue to be as competitive as these uh, first four or five races have been. Absolutely. All right. So our plan today is to talk about the Monaco Grand Prix, which was about, I guess, a week ago plus a few days, and then the Indianapolis 500, which was just a couple of days ago. And so we're going to, I guess, we'll break down one, then we'll break down the other, and then we can kind of compare and talk about anything else. Sound sound good to you? Yeah, I thought it'd be a good, fun thing to do is it's the two, what's the word I'm looking for? The marquee events of their... Thank you, the marquee events of the seasons. Um, And some some years they're on the same day, but this year they, they were a week apart, and I just... And I think you couldn't get two more contrasting events, um, really. Um, so I, I just thought it would be a fun thing to uh, to dive into the season with a, a comparison of, of Monaco and Indy. Yeah. What, which do you like better? Do you like them both being on the same day and have just this mega racing day? Or did you like it better having them spread out across two weekends? I used to like it when they were on the same day when I was just had regular TV, I guess. Um, <laughs> You know, um, because there was a time when, when there also used to be a NASCAR race on the same day. So you'd get Monaco in the morning, then sort of Indy in the afternoon and a NASCAR race in the evening. Um, I don't think the family partic- particularly liked that day, but, uh, you know. Um, so I used to like that. But but now I sort of watch them online. Hmm. I quite like having the, the gap between the two. Um, and uh, I, I, I think it gives you more time to sort of think and process one and then really enjoy that and then build up to the other. I think having them both on the same day, it just sort of all 
which is going to sound weird for racing, but it all became a bit of a rush, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm just getting older, and I can't I can't handle three major motor races on the same day. Too much, man. <laughs> I I think I like it spread out, just because I like there being something going on almost every weekend. And when they crammed them both on the same weekend, then you'd get maybe weekends on either side if there were neither one. Right. And so I, you know, if it was up to me, there would be just one, but they'd alternate weeks all year. You know what I mean? That way I'd have yep. IndyCar this week and Formula One next week and back and forth. But of course it it's not quite that smooth. There are some weekends you get to and some you don't get any, but uh we call those the dark weekends. But anyway. <laughs> all right. Well let's look at Monaco then. We'll start out with it and then we'll talk about Indy. Uh it should be a lot of fun. Um I guess to kind of set things up and and, and whatever you want to add to it, I would just basically say that Max Verstappen has been the most competitive to some degree with Lewis Hamilton of anybody at up to this point in the season in several years, going back to Rosberg in 2016. But the weird thing is, given that fact, Lewis is still Lewis, and so he was leading. And, you know, even on the races where he didn't necessarily win, he might get the fastest lap and still get a point away. So he is never, you can never take for granted that that Lewis is um is uh is is out of the picture. He's always right there. You know, he 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 he's he won at least one of the earlier races this season that he didn't have any business win. He he won a race where he was a lap down and spun out and still came back, you know. So um or at least he was in the top did he win that one or he was just finished like way higher than we thought he was going to finish in that one? I forget. Was that I Italy? I think he finished. Yeah. I think he finished yeah. higher in the points. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. So, so anyway, so the going in, this was a chance maybe for, for Red Bull and for Max to get, a, to at least make up some of the ground. And the other thing I would say, it looked like a weekend that Ferrari might have something going on. So why don't you take it from there and kind of set our stage? Yeah, as you, as you quite rightly mentioned, you know, everything showed after testing really that Red Bull were going to be as competitive or up there with Mercedes this year. Um, it seemed that way going into most of the races. But again, the Mercedes were locking out the front rows uh, in qualifying. They were pulling out those qualifying laps and they were playing great strategy in some of the races. Um, so we went into Monaco with, even though we'd had literally, I think every race, Hamilton and Verstappen going to wheel to wheel at some point. Um, Max had only won one, I believe, and Lewis had won three. Three, I think so. Um, yeah, going into Monaco. So uh, even though, you know, it, on during the actual races, we were getting some really good wheel-to-wheel racing, and we were still getting pretty much the same, what looked to be the same results. Um, yeah. You know, I think, it, I think at one point, didn't they set a record for the same three people on the podium yes. earlier this year? <laughs> that it was uh, Hamilton... Bodas and Verstappen, they became like the most consistent trio on the podium in the history of the sport. Um, That's amazing. So it, it was, it was to an extent, feeling the same old, same old, even if the actual races were um, closer. Um, and as you said, you know, there was one that uh, I think Mercedes won beautifully on strategy, which we'll talk about Mercedes strategy in this race because it played a big part in this, the results of this race. Um, and the fact that um, Lewis... It was good to see Lewis on a couple of occasions having to actually fight back through um, through the traffic. And again, it was a you know a stark contrast between him and his teammate because the the one you talked about where he 
spun out and made mistakes. And I think he was back down in ninth or tenth and drove his way through to second while his teammate basically couldn't make any progress in the same car. <laughs> um, so, you know, people say, oh, it's just the car, it's just the Mercedes. But, you know, when he when he needs to dig in and drive it, he can outdrive the car. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah. I have no doubt if you put Lewis in half the cars in the field, he would still be in the top two or three, if not the number one spot. He's that good. I mean, he, I absolutely am, am blown away by his <laughs> ability to just get everything out of that car. And, and he, when he's in a car that's as good as he is, it's just, you know, that's like giving Joe Montana, Jerry Rice, and the offensive line and everything. You know, you're just giving somebody who's already amazingly talented all the good tools around him. So it just is. Yeah, I mean, unfair. you know, I, we tend to focus on the, you know, the hundred poles and the, you know, seven world championships and all that. But, you know, the stats that get me is the fact, you know, he's the only driver in history to have won a race in every single season he's raced in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You wow. know, for me, that's more about it is that consistency. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, he hasn't had a, he hasn't had a, a race. He hasn't finished outside the points in literally years. I mean, you know, even when he has a bad day, he, uh, he just consistently gets the results. And and that's been the thing that Max has been doing. I think better. I mean, there's. I think there's two things this year that have that have got Max in the lead right now. One is that his car is obviously competitive with the Mercedes and the Ferrari and, and everything. I mean, he's got a he's got a car for once that's not a step below. It seems like it may be better. It may be the same depending on the track. You know, the conditions. But he's in a competitive car that gives him a chance to win. But the other thing is. How many times in previous seasons have we seen Max uh, where, you know, four or five races out of the year, his car dies on him halfway through the, tra- through the race? You right. Know, he, you know, Max probably has a consistent streak of, like, top three, top three, DNF, DNF, top three, DNF. You know, you don't see that with Mercedes maybe once or twice a year. So this year, I don't think he's had a DNF yet, and that's made all the difference, I think. It does. Um, And the difference, you know, I think Max has has matured a bit. I mean, he's always been 110% every lap. I I was listening to an interview with with Roman Grosjean, actually, the other day, and he was was asked, what's the difference? Because, you you know, race against both. What's the difference between Lewis Hamilton and and, uh, Max Verstappen? And he was like, you know, Lewis can read every lap of every race. He knows where everybody is. He's like a real thinker, you know, um, he does what he needs to do. And then he said, Max is just 110% all the time. you know, um, and sometimes, yeah, I guess that stresses the car. Um, but uh, oh, yeah. I don't know. Maybe he's dialed it back to 108 percent and just <laughs> <laughs> given it a bit more uh, reliability um, this year. But, uh, but yeah, you know, he's still exploring all the track limits and uh, you know trying the moves, which makes him so much fun to watch. So. I got one more question for you. Then I want to get into the race itself. How how do you feel about Sergio Perez this year so far? Is I mean. I feel like he's done better than Albon or Gasly did in that car, although it seems like nobody but Max can do what Max can do in that car, uh, much like Lewis in the Mercedes. So what is it with the second cars, and and how do you feel about Perez? Can he do better? Is he going to go up? Is this kind of his level? What do you feel about him? Um, I think he'll he'll do what Red Bull want him to do, which is to be a number two and shadow Max. I mean, you know, he did... We'll talk about Monaco in more detail, but he did good at Monaco. He's had some ups and downs. Um, he may even get a race win this year, hopefully. Um, but um, it will be, uh, you know, I think he'll do a better job. He's more mature. Um, 
I think, you know, he's in there knowing he's going to be the number two. He's Max's wingman. Um, I know he's had, I mean, at one race, he had some weird shoulder issue. Um, I don't know. Mm -hmm. So they put a new seat in. So, you know, I I don't think he's yet comfortable with the car. And we're pretty much seeing that with all the people who swap teams, except for Carlos Sainz. Carlos Sainz seems to have settled into the Ferrari, but, you know, he's taken Vettel five races to do anything with the Aston. Martin, you know, um, Ricardo's struggling with the McLaren, um, so you know. Um, so I think everybody who swapped teams is, is is struggling a bit. These, you know, these they may look very similar on the outside, but actually jumping from car to car, you've really got to, in a lot of cases, um, change your driving style because the cars are completely different in the way they handle. Seems um, like it. So, you know, it, it takes a while. Uh, and he seems to be adapting quicker. So uh, I, I, I've got... Uh, I've got hopes that he'll probably stick it out for a couple more years at uh, at Red Bull as a solid number two. That would be great with me. Those are my two. I mean, the two of them together for me is just like the is a, is just an absolute fantastic team. Who is the number one driver for McLaren right now? <laughs> Lando Norris by a long way. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought, but you wouldn't think it, would you? I mean, going in, if you're on a team with D- Danny Ricardo, and I mean, how how is this kid just killing it? And and Ricardo, who is I would think one of the top five drivers, pure drivers in the series, how is he doing so poorly? Is it just another case of the car works better with some people than others? Or yeah, I think it's it's also getting used to the car. You know, this is Lando's what third year in the car. Yeah, um, so he knows he knows the car. Um, the fact he's third in the championship is just amazing. I think he's doing an amazing job. Um, Ricardo, you know, he said that he's he's you know having literally having to change his driving style. Uh, the way he breaks, the way he enters the corner. Um, there's, there's, there's been shots on Instagram and things of him literally sat on, on the uh, on the grid with with the training manual for the car, you know, with, with sheets of paper with instructions on it and stuff. <laughs> and if you listen to some of the onboard um, during practice and, and that, that the, the team are coaching him around the corners, you know, break here, break there, do this, you know, like constant stream of stuff. So he he's literally having to you know learn to drive again because the car is completely different so though he has had one race where he did have you know he, he qualified ahead of lando and finished ahead of lando but that's uh, true yeah but not um, not this again, past week <laughs> but you know those, those two are both on contracts now till the end of 2023 so you know i think next year and the year after that they're going to be a very strong pairing so i just keep thinking what would it be like if he had stayed at red bull right now i don't know i think he'd still be number two to max yeah didn't but but he'd be finishing maybe where where Norris is. I don't know. Well, anyway. Yeah. Well, let's look at Monaco. So the, I think the big news going in, now that we've set the stage, was that Leclerc was going to be, well, he was on the pole, but there was a big but. What was that big but? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let, I actually want to take it back. One, I, I just want to talk a bit about Monaco generally. Um I always thought we could never have a Formula One season without Monaco. Um, I know it's an anomaly. It's a weird track. But last year, we didn't have Monaco in, and I didn't really miss it. (laughs) Um, um, I think the modern F1 cars are too big for that track. I mean, whatever they are, five meters long, two meters wide. I mean, um, you know, they said in the commentary they've got the the same floor plan as a Range Rover. Um, (laughs) So, you know. (laughs) So... um, now I'm imagining Range Rovers running around Monaco. I just want to Monaco. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate that. So, you know, I love Monaco. I love the look of it. And there's some great memories of watching races on TV there. Never having been. It's the one, one of the races I would love to go to. But I think these modern cars, 
I'm hoping this is the limit. I'm hoping the 2022 cars will be smaller and more agile and we'll get a bit more overtaking because we certainly didn't get any. Um, but having that said that, going to qualifying, I love watching the guys doing the qualifying laps at Monaco because they are like on it. I mean, they are crazy. literally millimeters away from those barriers yep. and touching those barriers, which gets us to Leclerc. So Leclerc was on pole, end of Q3, doing the doing those final runs and he misjudged one of those barriers, um, just tapped the front wheel, which pushed him over to the left, which curbed, launched him right even further into the barrier and broke the front of the car and whacked the back of it, which was the important bit. Um, now, there was a lot of people who said they were on a run and they would have been on pole um, because it, the session got red flagged oh, and got stopped. Yeah. And it's like everybody in the field was like, I was on a much better oh, lap, yeah. I would have been on pole. Uh, yeah. But if you look at the look at the analysis and that, nobody would have actually eclipsed his pole time. Nobody was on a faster run. Um, but there was a lot of unhappy people. Um, so he was uh, he was uh, still on pole, even though he actually uh, was the cause of the session being stopped. And I know a few people have called for, you know, there should be a rule that if you're the person that stops the, the session, then your fastest lap should be disallowed and stuff. Mm. Um, but uh, I don't think that's right. I think, you know, he, he'd got the pole fair and square. Um I don't know if you caught it. There was actually a, a, a few references to that. If you're going to do it deliberately, you don't do it at that part of the track. You do it at Rakasse, which yeah. is the last corner. Did you know what that was in reference to? It was something about Schumacher. Yeah. So back in the day, Michael Schumacher, when he was actually on pole and looked like Alonso was on a faster lap behind him, Schumacher deliberately spun the car at Rakasse and brought out a red flag and stopped the session. Um, so... Uh, but it, it was so blatant. I mean, it was pretty obvious what he'd done. Um, so he actually got demoted from the front of the grid to the back, which is the previous time that we've actually had an empty front row slot at, uh, Ferrari, uh, at Monaco with another Ferrari. I didn't realize he actually paid a price for that. I, I remember them yeah. saying that he, he did something like that, but that's very interesting. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because this uh, is, because so there was this a lot is... of parallels drawn to that. So the, the thing from that was, so um, Leclerc was on pole, um, in the Ferrari, which was amazing. Actually having a somebody born and raised in Monaco on the pole at Monaco was, was pretty intense. Um, it was great to see. The Ferraris had done really well. Um, and there was some concern over whether the gearbox had been damaged. Hmm. Um, and if they'd have gone in and changed the gearbox, they would have got a five-slot grid penalty, so he would have started six. So, so Ferrari did a visual inspection this is my understanding anyway. Ferrari did a visual inspection of the gearbox because they couldn't fire it up because they were in Park Ferme. Um, so they did a visual inspection and nothing looked bent and everything looked okay. You can't make any changes for folks that You can't make any changes in Park Ferme, yeah. So they couldn't fire it up. Um, and then, so they decided to keep it as is. And then when he went out on the formation lap to get to the grid, basically the drive shaft went. Um, and uh, it just rolled him back into the pits and he got out of the car. So we had an empty empty pole position grid slot on uh, at the start of the race. Um, and, of course, he, he has never finished a Monaco Grand Prix and has now didn't even start that one, even though he had poles. So his bad luck at his home race uh, continues. Well, I think it's important to note also, again, for those who don't know, that more than any other race in the year, being on the pole at Monaco is so important. When they say track position matters, what they're saying is you want to be in front because it's incredibly hard to pass. It is, yes, yeah, and you can dictate because it is so hard to pass. You can dictate 
the race, the pace of the race as well. Fuel, strategy, everything else from the front. So. <laughs> Ricardo won the thing a couple of years ago going like 40 miles an hour because nobody could get around him. His, his engine was messed up and he finished like the last 20 laps or something just puttering around the track. But he was in track position, right? He was in first place and nobody could get around him. So that's yeah, why and, Ferrari was willing to roll the dice like that is because yeah, it's worth yeah. it to be in first. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah, if it was yeah. if it was another track, they might have said, "Well, five grid positions. What's the big deal, right?" But at Monaco, right. that's the difference between having the chance to win and probably not having any chance to. Win. Exactly. Yeah. And a few years ago, Hamilton won on tires that were really degraded and stuff you know, by, by yep. keeping people behind him. Yep. Um, yeah. So. Well, so the race gets underway with a vacated front spot. They didn't move the cars around. They just didn't have anybody in the front. But that had a significant point, too, because um, that put Max, who was now effectively starting first, on the outside. And that meant that if Botas, who was starting in third but was on the inside, could get just enough up. I'm making it with my hands, but you folks listening can't see it. If Botas in second could get, I mean, in, yeah, in, effectively in second from the third position, if he could get into that turn on a roughly even parallel with Max, he might could grab first. Yeah. So what Max had to do was stomp the gas and immediately veer over to the right to keep Botas from getting the inside position. And Max is like, he reminded me of Rosberg there, where it was like, I'm coming. You, you can hit me or you can get out of the way, but I'm coming. And, and we know what Botas is going to do in that situation. He's going to get out of the way, which he did. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was an aggressive move, but it was a fair move. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, basically he did that. And from there, he pretty much won the race. I mean, that was it. He was he was gone. Yeah. This is this is yeah. why track position matters so much in this race, right? The only, <laughs> the, in fact, the, the, the only first lap, the first lap there was a couple of – I was going to say that first lap, there was a couple of interesting takes further down. Um, G- um, oh, Giovanni in the... Um, Giovanazzi. In the Alfa Romeo. Thank you. In the Alfa Romeo. He, uh, he went around the outside of Ocon, I believe it was, at Mirabeau, which is not a place you normally go around the outside of. So that was pretty cool. And then right at the back, the two Haas kids were um, oh, yeah. banging wheels. Um, Mick Schumacher wanted to make sure that uh, he wasn't last. Um, yeah. Be. <laughs> and he was going to get his teammate out of the way at the hairpin, um, which is not the best place to dive down the inside of somebody, but he did it. Um, and that was pretty much it uh, until the pit stops, wasn't it? Uh, until sort of lap 29. Well, I can say that that's the only way you can lose at that point, unless your car explodes, is if something happens like happened to Ricardo the other year where he was leading and he goes into the pits and they didn't have his tires ready. They didn't even know he was coming. They didn't have his tires ready. He's just sitting there waiting on tires. So... Yeah, once you get the lead in this race, um, it's really just down to does does your team make a mistake? Do you make a mistake? And Max didn't make any real mistakes, it seemed like. No, I mean, it was a couple of places, times towards the end where you could see it was starting to slide when the tires were getting a bit old. But uh, yeah, he kept it out of the barriers and he kept it clean and uh, he did well. So really not much else to talk about in the race other than I thought it was cool that Sergio Perez started ninth, which is low for him. He shouldn't have been that low, but he somehow through pit strategy and timing 
jumped all the way up to fourth, including passing Lewis. And of course, we also need to talk about what happened to Lewis because right. Lewis just never could make up any ground and was furious when he came out of his pit and actually lost ground. So, so let's talk about Lewis and let's talk about Sergio Perez in terms of pit strategy and how that played out. Well, yeah, well, I think the whole pit strategy is. I said earlier that you know Mercedes won a race on uh, on. On strategy, they lost this one on strategy. Right. Um, for some reason, Lewis was the first person to pit on. I think it was lap twenty nine. He came in. Um, I think you know the idea was that they would try and get him out ahead of Pierre Gasly. Um, right. But Pierre Gasly's um, lap with Lewis out of the out of the way in front of him that actually opened up track space for Gasly to go faster. <laughs> to go fast. That uh, seemed to be the effect. Yeah, people could go faster when there was clear air. Yeah, so Gasly got clear air and could go quicker while Lewis was in the pits. Um, so when Lewis came out of the pit, he came out behind Gasly, so he'd lost one space, one slot, and he wasn't happy about that. Mm-mm. And then Vettel pitted, um, and he did it. His in lap was quicker than Lewis's and Gasly's out lap. So he actually came out literally side by side with Gas, head of Lewis, but side by side with Gasly. That's right. Um, and those two, that was that was probably the best overtake move of the race. Was those two going wheel to wheel into Mirabeau? Um, Gasly said afterwards there was not a spare centimeter to have between his tire and the, and, um, you know, the guardrail. Um, not at not at Monaco. And, and yeah, Vettel came was came out ahead of them um, out of that tussle. So Lewis had now lost two places. Um, and as you said, by this time, because of all the pit stops, Perez was actually up in second with a big gap between him and Verstappen, so had lots of clear space mm-hmm. and free air, clear air. So he could really put his foot down in the Red Bull. So by the, the time f- he pitted... He had the fastest out, lap, yeah, for a while. Yeah, yeah. And it was fastest lap. So by the time he pitted and came out, he came out ahead of that group and was in fourth spot. So, yeah, Hamil- Hamilton basically, in trying to do something and gain one place <laughs> over Gasly, they ended up losing three. Um, oh. through really bad pit stop strategy. And uh, yeah, Lewis was not happy. on, And they were the first ones to pit. Everybody else triggered. Right. He triggered the rest of the pit stops. And Mercedes don't normally do that. They're not usually the first ones to blink. No. Um, so yeah, Lewis was was not happy. And you could tell that, as I mentioned, the, you know, other races where he's got had bad luck and he slipped down, he's really put his head down and, and charged. And he pretty much gave up. I mean, he just decided to drive around for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> Who can blame so. him? Uh, up until the very end when they actually put a, on a set of soft tires for him to go out and set the fastest lap. I was going to say, even after all that, even after all that, he still got the fastest lap. It was interesting because it was jumping all over the board there until he got it. It was like Sonoda had it at one point. Right, yeah. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Well, as you said, you get that you get that clear air in front of you at Monaco. You can, mm. you can make up good time. So yeah. uh, the trouble is that track is so tight and short and twisting <laughs> that you very rarely get that free air in front of you. So. That's exactly. So it ends up, and then we can talk about it anymore, um, it ends up with Verstappen in first, signs from Ferrari in second, Lando Norris with McLaren in third, Sergio Perez all the way up to fourth. He was my driver of the day. He didn't win it. I Actually, this is the first time I actually got to vote. This is the first time <laughs> I saw it in time. I was like, oh. <laughs> so I went and voted for Sergio, but he ended up like third, I think. Vettel was in the competition, and somebody else got it. Um, Vettel Gaz- got it, I think. Who? Vettel got it, I think. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, he, he, he ended up in fifth, and I mean, he's just struggled all year. So, yeah. Uh, Gasly in sixth, and then Lewis Hamilton in seventh, which seventh is, it's going to sound weird to say this, but seventh was actually pretty good for him given the way that race went. 
And then Lance Stroll in eighth, Esteban Ocon in ninth, and Antonio Giovinazzi in tenth with his... That's got to be his best finish of the year, if not his career, isn't it? Um, no, I think he's got one other in the points. Okay. But, uh, he doesn't seem yeah. like that bad of a driver. It's just that the Alfa Romeos are not terribly... They're, they, Him and Kimi both, it seemed like they were a little more competitive this race than they have been this season. Yeah, and Giovinazzi, I think, has actually been the, the more consistent of the two of them um, so far. So, so if we're going to talk about uh, Mercedes um, pit stops, we have to talk about Valtteri Bottas's pit Oh, stop. I forgot about that. I try to put... <laughs> wow, yeah, okay. So so what happened with, with uh, Bottas? So Bottas comes in, I think it was the lap after Hamilton. Anyway, yeah. around lap 31, 32, something like that. That's right. Pits, looks like it's going to be a good pit stop, and then they can't get literally cannot get one of the wheels off. Uh, they keep changing guns. And it seemed what had happened is basically they, they literally strip the nut off um, the things that the air gun attaches to on the nut got stripped off and they could not undo the wheel nut. Um, and you actually watch the replay. You can actually see the bits of metal as it <laughs> machines the, the wheel nut down and you can see the bits of metal fly. So there was a, um, there was a great, there was a great meme going around of the two world, the, the two world record pit stops at, set at Monaco. There was Red Bull at one point eight seconds, and then there was Mercedes at fifty thousand seconds <laughs> and counting <laughs> and counting. Yeah. Still going, I guess. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, they did get it off. It took them five days to get that. <laughs> they had to, I knew they had to like break it open, or they like. Yeah, they had to it ship it back to the factory and basically chisel it off. Yeah. Oh my yeah. goodness! Yeah, so, I said uh, they weren't they weren't unscrewing the nut; they were polishing it. <laughs> yeah, they were. Yeah, they literally rounded it off and stripped the stripped the uh, the threads. Yeah, so the whole thing was just welded in place, um, which I've never seen before. I've never seen any, but I'm, I'm, I've never seen it where they literally cannot take a wheel off the car. Um, so so much so much for Mercedes' special wheel nut design. I guess they will be uh, redesigning that. Somebody was saying, couldn't they just uh, put the other three back on and keep going, which is true up until the point that either the wheels pop or the tires, you know, give up, or you still have to have two compounds. If that had been uh, the second compound, they might could have gotten away with it. Well, no, you're not allowed to do that either. You're not allowed to have mixed mix matched sets. No, I mean, put them back on. Oh, yeah. Put the same yeah. ones back on and go. Yeah, they could have done. Yeah, they could have done. But then again, if the wheel nut was, was done... Uh, yeah, as, we'll, yeah. we'll probably talk about it when we get in the Indy 500 but you know dodgy wheel nuts yeah you gotta Ooh, be yeah that's oh Graham oh poor Graham yeah that so you got my you, heart yeah alright you so, don't want to go out there with a damaged wheel nut so that's, but, uh, yeah. that's a good that's a good uh, life lesson right there go, don't go out there with a damaged wheel nut guys damaged wheel nut, yeah. <laughs> that's no good in your life you don't need that in your life uh, any other notes or items of, of interest about Monaco before we switch over to Indy for a couple of minutes? Um, I, I think just the general thing about Monaco, to be honest. Th yeah, there was there was some fun stuff and some intrigue, but boy, it was a boring race. It's, it always um, is. It's Well, the thing is, it's not always. I, Mon when it rains in Monaco, it can get really interesting. Um, right, there's, well, been some there's been some classic races at Monaco or classic incidents. Um but not for a long time. The other, the other thing was, of course, this Mon this Monaco, there was no safety car. Nobody hit the barriers. There was oh, no yeah. safety car, which I think is the first time in a long, long time that there's been um, no safety car at Monaco. Um, so the result was this was actually the fastest Monaco Grand Prix in history. 
It may not have felt like it when you were watching it, but it was actually um, well, the well, fastest was... Monaco Grand Prix in history with an average speed of just under 100 miles an hour. It was a 98 point something miles an hour average speed, which what? is still pretty quick when you're going around those streets between oh, those street. tunnel barriers at an average of 100 miles an hour. When you think that at the hairpin, they're slowing down to like 20. Um, plus pits. Yeah. Plus pit stops and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, that's yeah, that's yeah. pretty amazing. Well, I was going to say that Indy was the was the least yellow flags ever too. So this was a the, the, the yeah least- yeah, and the fastest Indy five hundred too. So uh, yeah, yeah, they, they both. So both races got the fewest fewest um, stoppages and the fastest. Um, the other thing about Monaco, this was the first time that those three drivers had actually been on the podium at Monaco. They were all first time Monaco podium. Um, all three of them. Wow. Yeah. All three of them. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and the other great thing was, we ha- I, I love the fact that on that podium, we had a Red Bull, a Ferrari, and a McLaren. No Mercedes inside. No. It was, it, and I think, was it um, Q3 was seven different teams in Q3? Yeah, it um, seemed like a lot of different ones, yeah. So it was good to, to really see it start to, to get that mix. We're starting to see the field tighten up. Um, We'll see with Baku next week if that was just a one-off thing at Monaco. But, um, you know, there were signs. For me, Monaco, even though the race itself wasn't the greatest, I think there was a lot of interesting talking points coming out of it. Yeah, absolutely. There usually are to some degree, but particularly this year. I want to say two things. We've uh, My solution to Monaco is uh, water sprinklers. There you go. Make it interesting because yep. it, it is a parade otherwise. I think Monaco looks so cool when you watch uh, Grand Prix, the 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 uh, James Garner right. movie we reviewed last year, in those little cars with giant engines flying around there, landing in the water and everything. That looks cool. And then you put these things that are designed for a modern racetrack on there, and it just is never going to be the same. No, no. I mean, they, they did uh, – it was a historic race uh, – about a month ago at Monaco with the, the cars from the 1970s and stuff. And you just watch the onboards on that. And it was like, great. Or even the stuff from the eighties and nineties, they look really good. Um, it's just when we got, as I say, these, as the cars got wider and bigger, um, you, you literally can't overtake anymore. There just isn't the space, um, which is, is a real shame because, you know, we saw a couple of overtaking maneuvers, but, uh, you know, those are real brave, shut your eyes and go type moments. Um, they, they are few and far between which is unfortunate. That's true. There's a, a friend of my colleague at my college where I work that just he and his wife have just started watching Thanks to Drive to Survive, of course, on Netflix. It's right, yeah. all these new people in. They're a great example. Yep. And and I was telling him, I'm like, you know, look, it's a fun race, Monica, to watch. But I said, don't expect anything more than a parade once they're really racing because you're not going to get a lot of passing. But I said, next week, next week is the one that's my favorite because the thing about Baku is... It's got Monaco at one end, but it's got these two crazy straightaways at the other end. Right. So you actually get some competition. It's like you're flying, and then all of a sudden you're weaving through the streets of Monaco around that castle, and then you're flying again. And so it's, to me, there's two reasons I love Baku, and I don't want to go too far down that path, but I just mentioned One is because um, it, it the design gives you both speed and then maneuvering in two different sections. The other thing I like about Baku is that just about every year, it is a track where unexpected drivers are on the podium. I love that. Lance Stroll was on the podium there a couple of years ago, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's crazy. 
Yeah, I mean the first year we the first year we went to the the series went to Baku. It was a really boring race, and everybody was like, "Oh my god, this is just another Monaco." But every other year after that, it's just been crazy. Yes. So uh, yeah, there was one year that the two Force India cars could have finished one two, and then they ran into each other. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh no! That that alone shows you how crazy of a race it is. I can't. Oh, the, wait red, from the Red Bull cars running into each other, or Daniel oh, yeah. Ricciardo reversing into Danny Kvyat, or you know, <laughs> there's been so many crazy. Vettel, Vettel nerfing the back of uh, Lewis's Mercedes on the safety car lap. And yeah, there's a, there's a whole yeah Baku. If there isn't something crazy, then it's a disappointment. So. I, I tell you right now, here's who just just based on the trends in the past. Here's my podium for Baku next weekend. Number one is going to be Lando Norris. Number two is going to be uh, Esteban Ocon. And number three is going to be George Russell. There's That's a, that's a Baku podium <laughs> right there, man. That is a Baku podium. Absolutely. So <laughs> I can see the first two as much as I love George and uh, <laughs> wish him well. It's, uh, that's pushing it. But even even at Monaco, George still managed to get the uh, the Williams out of the bottom five in oh, qualifying. So Good deal. Yeah, he's yeah. he's on his way up, I think for sure. He definitely is. All right, let's look at Indianapolis, the Indy Five Hundred. Um, we had a fantastic shootout in 2019, and then not so much in 2020. But uh, this was an interesting one. I feel like everybody else liked this Indy 500 better than I did. Maybe it's, I think it's for two reasons. One, because Alexander Rossi, my favorite driver, he and Dixon suffered catastrophic crisis early in the race that ruined the race for both of them. But not, and he ended up basically last on the track. But then number two, the way that this race played out, and, and this happens in IndyCar for me, so I hope you can help me and, and the listeners with this. Okay, Alan, here's my problem. One of my many problems in life, but here's my problem with this. <laughs> here's my problem is this never happens in Formula One. Formula One, it's usually pretty straightforward who's in first, who's in second, who's in third, and all that. Uh-huh. In IndyCar, because they pit a lot more, particularly in the 500, they go through these cycles where, like, yep. One through five is leading for a while, and then all of a sudden, 18 through 24 is leading, and one through five are at the bottom, and they cycle around and jump around, and I'm like, wait, what happened? What? Who? Where? What? <laughs> and so, so for like two-thirds of that race, it was it was Connor Daly, and I know he got hit by a wheel, but still, I mean, it was Connor Daly and uh, Renus VK, VK and Herta. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, all three of them just disappeared. It's like they all crashed and we didn't see it. And I'm going, how did how did these guys end up up there that, you know, the Castroneves and Award and, and um, I know Paginot kind of fought his way up. Right. How, how did that happen? I just feel like I missed a, I feel like I fell asleep and missed about five laps where everything changed. But I didn't. No, you didn't. Um I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a great Indy 500. Um, I actually want to just do one quick compare, though. I, I, I did last night, as we know we were going to do this, is I'll go back and watch the highlights of the two races. Mm-hmm. I did find it interesting that the highlights for on, online for the Indy 500 was half an hour. The, highlight, <laughs> the highlights for Monaco was five minutes and 37 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> so, and for me, that was like, yeah, that was the difference between the two races. Um, yeah. You know. And most of the Monaco highlights was the qualifying stuff. Um, so, um, but yeah, I I think the thing is, as you said, with the with the the lo- particularly the long races in the ovals, it's amazing what a difference just fuel mileage makes to the end result. It's like a cumulative effect because 
particularly VK, who I like, I think he's, I, I really rate him. But at the beginning, he went out front. I mean, he, he he made that move to get out front and try and win the race from the front from like lap two. Yeah. The thing is, if you do that, not only are you, you you're using more fuel because you're pushing through the air, you're using more fuel because you're pulling the cars behind you. Um, so that over a period, that basically means that either you have to stop slightly earlier or you have to stop once one more time than anybody else. And also that when you do make a, foot, a pit stop, you're having to put more fuel in, so it takes that marginal of seconds longer. And over 200 laps, each of those little margins adds up and you gradually okay. fall down. Well, the guys, you know, the, I mean, you know, Dixon and Rossi were unlucky because they were, you know, oh. working the fuel mileage, trying to get that as long as possible, and then, you know, run out of fuel as the pits were closed and then literally ran their cars dry. And couldn't restart that car. It was that timing yeah. that there was an accident right as they were trying to pit, and they couldn't. Yeah. They they had waited to the last second, and yeah. then who could have predicted that right as they wait to the last second to come in is exactly when a wreck happens, and that, in the pit lane as well. Yeah, in the pit the lane, and it messes yeah. everything up, and both of their cars stalled, and they're just sitting yeah. there, and, and you know Rossi's just like pulling his hair out and tearing the, you know, oh yeah. god, I was so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I did like at the end of it when the two of them came out at the, at the back of the field, and he's giving the Dixon the hurry up yeah. to catch up with the rest of the field. And uh, yet, and yet, Dixon ended up on the lead lap, and Rossi ended up dead last on the track. I still don't understand how that happened because Di- Rossi. Yeah, I think he had was- to come in and do another pit stop, didn't he? Because they couldn't, cha- they hadn't changed the tires when the fuel lock happened. So, and it was a yeah. close pit. So, he, yeah, yeah. And they decided so. to come in and gas up and then just put the me- pedal to the metal and try to pass everybody. And yeah. Rossi was doing that, and Dixon wasn't, and yet somehow Rossi ended up still dropping back behind Dixon. Because I think he had to make an extra pit stop. So, yeah. W- w- yeah, yeah. I mean, the pit thing was interesting because that, that first one was caused by um, Stefan Wilson spinning. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a moment. Um, Scott uh, McLaughlin had a moment. Several, uh, yeah. Several, several coming people. into the pits. Um, Simone Di Silvestri had the same issue. Mm. Um, I think uh, there was about four or five cars that had that problem coming into the pits where the back end got loose. And I think three of those cars were all set up by Penske. They were either a Penske car or they were set up by Penske. I didn't think about that, yeah. So I don't know whether they got something in the setup of the cars wrong that when they were light on fuel mm. and hitting the brakes coming in, you just lose the downforce and the back end goes. Um, so I thought that was sort of an interesting little side note um, yeah. that uh, Penske just didn't uh, seem to be with it um, for the 500 this this time around. Yeah. Um, Except for Baggio toward the end. Yeah, um, I, I, I really enjoyed it. There was a lot of um, a lot of changes for the lead. I was actually just looking it up. Um, I think it was 35, 35 lead changes among 13 drivers. So, mm. you know, different. Front was front of the field was was going. I, you know, I was watching um, as well as you know. It was great to see that the young guys up front, as you said, you know, Connor Daly, Alex Pillow, Pado Award, Renus VK, seeing those guys up front. Um, but I was also watching, enjoying watching um, my one of my all time favourites, Juan Pablo Montoya, sort of work his way up into the top ten from down in the field. Um, and Castro Nevis, he was he was always. Unless he was like cycled out on a pit stop, but generally he was always up and around the top five. I mean, he yeah. was there all day. He was hunting those guys down all day um, and doing a great job. Um, so uh, yeah, I I re- really uh, really enjoyed it. And again, 
there was only two two yellows, um, and it was the quickest quickest Indy 500 in history with a slightly faster average speed than Monaco. Um, the average speed was 190 miles an hour um, <laughs> at the Indy 500, so almost 100 miles an hour faster than than the Monaco average speed. Um, so yeah, I. I I don't think it was. I mean, and it was a pretty close finish at the end. I mean, with Castro Nevis, he he made that jump three laps from the end, and then Pelot was uh, catching him towards the end because of the traffic. They were catching up with traffic. I think another lap he may have, may have had him. Um, so it was not you know not a, not the closest in history, but it was a pretty close finish uh, at, the, at the end of the five hundred miles. So I I thought it was uh, a, a very enjoyable race. Um, I, I just thought it was a very interesting contrast with Monaco the week before. Well, here's an interesting uh, note. Before the race, there was a lot of talk that that you know Ganassi always is, has been good the last couple of years, but there was talk that Andretti yeah. this was their big chance that Penske was down maybe, and Andretti this was their year uh, with Rossi or with Herta. Well, yeah. the highest finishing Andretti car, and you know they have a lot of associations Andretti yeah, with yeah. somebody with somebody. The highest finishing Andretti car. <laughs> Was Colton Herta in sixteenth, which is almost the midpoint of the pack, and then that's below an AJ Foyt car. J.R. Hildebrandt finished higher than any Andretti. Ouch! Yeah. And then after that, Marco was the second highest Andretti, and then uh, James Hinchcliffe, who's been bad all year, was the third. Ryan Hunter Ray was up in the top five a lot of the day, but he faded toward the end too. He was next, and then poor old Alexander Rossi. In 29th place. At least he was ahead of Will Power. <laughs> Will Power. Yeah, that was the other one. That's, but that was the other Penske that had a problem in the pits, wasn't it? It was Will Power. Yeah, so, yeah he was yeah. facing the wrong way. He had a rough weekend, yeah. all, a week all the way around, though. He didn't qualify yeah. well, and then he didn't drive well. So. Yeah, so uh, it was interesting. Um, but it was, I was going to go somewhere with that, and I've completely forgotten where I was going to go. Never mind. So, I, Graham Rahal, oh. he... Thank you. That's where I was going to go. Graham Rahal, yes. Okay. <laughs> um, we were talking about fuel mileage earlier. If anybody was making the best fuel mileage, I think it was Graham Rahal. Mm-hmm. I mean, he seems to be eking out the longest. Um, he had a, a car that looked like it could win um, based on the strategy. He, he looked like he could take it longer and, and make quicker pit stops um, than anybody. Um, and then we, as we mentioned earlier, um, you don't want to go driving around with a, a, a loose wheel nut because um, exiting the pits, the... Uh, was it the, the left rear? Yeah, the left rear wheel um, decided it was going a completely different route um, than the rest of the car and popped off. And uh, he just it just threw him. That was scary because it threw him right at the track, right in front of the pack. Um, everybody was coming down. Um, and and then, it hit, hit Connor Daly, the, the wheel. Yeah, and then the wheel bounced. The, the wheel did actually follow him up the track, hit the wall and bounced back. And then Connor Daly hit it square on with the, hit the front of his car and it threw it up in the air. Um, without the arrow screens, God knows how that could have would have turned out. Um, that, that was a that was a scary moment. Um, so I think two very lucky drivers there um, that uh, nobody hit Ray Hull as he was spinning in front of the pack, and then Daly with the with the wheel, um, which rearranged the nose of his car, and I think pretty much dropped ruined his day. But uh, yeah, that, that could have been uh, could have been nasty for both. The interesting thing to me, one of the really interesting things about the way the Indianapolis 500 t- seems to come out every year, it's it's kind of like you do 180 laps of competitive racing, and then on the last 20 laps, 
the Indy 500 itself puts everybody who's left their name in a hat and says, Oh, Elio. <laughs> it feels like they just, it just kind of, because they always say that the track chooses the winner. And I mean, if you watch a couple of Indy 500s, you kind of see what people mean when they say that, which is that it's, you can have the best strategy, you can have the best pit crew, you can have the best car. Doesn't really matter at Indy. It's just a lottery a lot of the time. It is. And I actually also think it, a lot of it is experience. I mean, you know, that's yeah. where a lot of the younger, it's not very often you get a really young winner at the Indy 500. It's usually somebody who's done it several times already. Um, and you could see that as he, towards the end, as, as uh, Ilya was, was bringing down, a, a, catching Alex Palau, that, uh, you know, he went, he went around the outside with, which he doesn't normally do. Um, it was, it was a brave move, but he, once he got it, he, he sort of changed his line. He knew which line to take. He knew which groove to take. He knew how to take the, take the air off the the car following. Um, so, I, you know, experience really played into that, I think. Uh, but you've got to be there at the end to take those chances. And as you say, you know, it's, you know, it's 230 laps of um, maneuvering to be in a position for those last 20 laps. Um, yeah. It's all about just getting to the end. They always say you can, you can lose it in the first couple of laps, but you're, you, you, you don't win it. But you can lose it in the first couple of laps. Yeah, it's, just, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's an endurance race until the end, and then it all of a sudden changes to a race race, you know? Yeah, yeah, so, it does, yeah. Become, it becomes a 20, la- uh, 20, 30 lap sprint race at the end. Yeah, yeah it's very after, interesting. After a, which is one of the reasons I love it, is, is because it's, it's like a mobile chess game for a large part of it, and strategy game, and then, you know, yeah. then it's just, okay, after the last pit stops, it's like, we're just going to go for it. So, so what did... Uh, if we haven't already talked about it, what did Castroneves do that won him the race? Was it just that he hung around the front or was able to hang around? He had good strategy. He had good fuel management, tire management. I mean, was it just a combination of a lot of little things that put him up there at the front so he could use that experience when he needed it? I think it was that, yeah. I mean, the car was set up. He talked afterwards about how well the tires worked. Um, I think it was tire management, fuel management. Making sure he was always around. I think the lowest I saw him drop was to like seventh. I think uh, you know, other than when they were sort of out of sequence. But right. generally, I think I think the lowest I saw him drop was about seventh. He was always you know around the top five, um, just just waiting. Um, I think that was you know, the, and he seemed to have the ability to um, run up both the top and the bottom of the track. A lot of folks you'd see were in a single groove, and he seemed to be able to run wherever he needed to. So I think they had the car really well set up. So. Um, I think he enjoyed giving a big F you to Penske for dropping him. Um, <laughs> oh, that was great. So, uh, oh, yeah. 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 He's, he's it been was, one of the, he, he's come in and raced as the extra Penske car the last several years, but that was McLaughlin in that yellow Pennzoil number three this time. Right. So he had to go. Find right. Yeah. This, this time he was for Maya Shanks. So not only was this Maya Shanks first uh, Indy 500 win, it was their first Indy car win. Wow. That's um, amazing. So, yeah, and they were kind of a so, somewhat associated with Andretti, isn't that right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, well, they are in they are with the sports car program. Okay. I think there's a connection there. Yeah. So. Okay, and I tell you what, Alex Pelot continues to impress me. He does. I don't know what he he's not spectacular. He's he's kind of boring, but he's just there. He won uh, yeah, the first I, race I mean, of the I, year. Yeah, I I think he did a good job though. Um, you know, since he moved away from Austin to move to Indianapolis, I'm not like. <laughs> cheering game on as quite as much as I was last season when he was uh, my local driver. Um, oh, yeah. But uh, but yeah, I think once he got the uh, 
the call with the uh, the Ganassi uh, squad. He uh, he moved to Indianapolis. Um, yeah, he's the, like I say, he VK um, Brian Herder, Connor Connor Daly. Um, they they're all. I think it's a it's a good bunch of you know younger drivers coming through. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and, and I actually, you know, we talked about Scott McLaughlin a couple of times. I think he has really impressed me because um, uh, you know I know he's a multi um, touring car supercar champion from Australia, but coming from a you know. Basically, a, a, you know, a, a road car into a single seater from a touring car into a single seater is, uh, and being as competitive as he is um, on the ovals, um, I think is is very impressive. Um, I know when I saw him here at the the Randolph Coda um, training day last year, when he led all the times, he was very impressive there. So um, yeah, he he continues to impress me. But yeah, Alex Polo, like you say, he's he's. He's sort of, I was going to say slow and steady, but he's quick and steady. But he's there, he's been there or thereabouts pretty much most of the uh, the races uh, this season. So, you know uh, who looked? I, uh, I'll tell you the one the one person who has not impressed me in IndyCar this year is Jimmy Johnson. No, <laughs> I was he, hoping for more for more from. He Jimmy knows Johnson. it. I, he knows yeah. it though. He's like he is. He's way out of his depth, and which just really surprises me. Yeah, he's so. been like, look, let me get out of you guys' way. Go on here. Go on. Here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Every he's like the Jimmy Johnson this season at, at IndyCar. He's he's and he didn't race in this race. Obviously, he's not doing the big ovals. But he's like the guy at the grocery store that's got like an overflowing cart, and so people keep coming up with like a loaf of bread and a bottle of milk. He's like, no, go ahead, go yeah. go ahead. I'm just gonna be here. Go ahead. <laughs> but um, there was one little side story I wanted to hit before I forget. Um, who is our who is our French uh, driver that's in any car this year from Formula One? Um, uh, Roman Grosjean. Roman Grosjean. Yeah, I love. They were talking about this on some other thing I heard the other day. They said that Grosjean is just loving IndyCar because he's got his giant. If you haven't seen it, he's, he he puts out a, a YouTube video every few days showing like here's my car, here's my RV. You know, his RV yeah. is like a castle on wheels. It's just a spectacular little house that he drives around. And he said that um, he loves IndyCar because he and the other drivers will get there in their RVs and park. And he says we'll just sit out there all night grilling burgers and steaks and stuff and just talking. He says, you don't do that in Formula One. And this was what I thought was really funny. He said, he says, we'll be sitting around having a beer, having a steak and, and, and talking together. And they're giving me tips. He says, nobody in Formula One gives anybody tips. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> on yeah. how to, yeah. on how to do anything. Right. I love it. Yeah, I, I love thinking, it. He was on the, he was on the Formula One podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about, uh, his time in IndyCar, uh, and he was saying that that uh, you know when he first went out to practice, he was like weaving the car to warm up the tires, and Connor Daly came over and was like, "You don't have to do that." <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like just just accelerate, just do a burst of acceleration and slow down, burst of acceleration, and he was like, "Really?" And it was like, "Is he just messing with my mind? Is he telling me something I shouldn't do?" Right, right. You know? And he, he was like, "No, no, you know they actually give you." Proper good advice, um, but yeah, he's uh, he has <laughs> he hasn't bought a home. He doesn't have a hotel or anything. He basically has this RV parked in the states, and he says it's you know got all his gear in it. When he goes back to France, he just has you know a little bit of carry on. And he and the kids, when the kids are out of school, they all come to the states and they drive around in the RV and you know discover you know discover the states. And uh, yeah, he was posting stuff from Chicago today. He was in downtown Chicago doing all the tourist sites, uh, which is cool. It's great That's to see awesome. him, you know, 
Oh, it's great. That's that. spectacular. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And I love that he's I love that he's taken so aback by the genuineness yeah. of the IndyCar drivers that they mean it, that they care, yeah. you know, that they're trying to help. You know, I, I I guess it's sort of a mercenary cutthroat culture in Formula One. It's every man for himself, you know, and 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 here it's not quite that's I honestly get the feeling that Formula One is like trying to get into like Major League Baseball or the NBA, and it's every man for himself. IndyCar is almost more like a rolling circus, and they're all trying to produce the best performance for the audience that they can, and they want to help each other produce a better performance for the audience. That's, that, there's, a, there's a cultural difference there. That There is a cultural difference, yeah. And you know, I think part of that comes down to the fact that you know, Formula One is, you know, every team is developing their own car and stuff. So, you know, it, it wouldn't matter what, you know, Lewis Hamilton couldn't say to, I don't know, Charles Leclerc, you should do this on your Ferrari because right. it it doesn't mean anything. Right. So, you know, the, the only person you can compare notes with is your teammate, and that's the one person you want to be. Um, <laughs> that's a good point. So, yeah, even your teammate's you know, not going to help you. Um, but, you know, um, I saw something online today that, uh, you know, that the, the mind games are already starting between Verstappen and, and Hamilton. Yeah. Um you know, so, uh, you know, and things that they're saying and stuff. So, you know, um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, see where they end up throwing uh, caps at each other like uh, Hamilton and Rosberg did. <laughs> you know, by the, time they get, by the time they get here to Coda. So. That shows you the difference, too, is that, that think about Rosberg and Hamilton and just the venom and the bad blood when they were competing. You go back a couple of years when it was Simon Pagano and Joseph Newgarden uh, going after each other, they were having like this this hilarious video competition of trying to autograph each other's stuff, which is a very very different spirit from what right. you had between. And that also, I think, it also says something about how in IndyCar, it's not just two guys. It's 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 you know, there's a lot more people that have a shot every race, and that takes away some of that venom. Because it's not going to be, you know, New Garden and Rossi every every race. It's lots of different people to kind of spread it around. Yeah, I mean, I do like one of the things I like about this new generation that's coming into Formula One. You know, there's the the bromance between Lando <laughs> Norris and, and Carlos Sainz, which I know they tried to play up in um, Drive to Survive, and it just didn't work that they'd fallen out because they clearly hadn't. And you saw that in Monaco, even though they were, you know, they're messing around on the podium. You know, <laughs> Sainz is... A, Running over to congratulate um, Norris during his interviews and stuff. I mean, still very much friends. There was, uh, you know, one of the first people when uh, Leclerc crashed out and was sat on the uh, the barriers. George Russell was like straight over there, put an arm around him. Um, so you know, there's that. There's the you know, th- those sort of the four guys who sort of came up through F3, carding F3, F2 together. You know, uh, uh, seem to have that friendship, and it seems to be extending across the you know. Um, Mick, Mick Schumacher seems to be good friends with a couple of people. Um, so I think you're starting to see a shift in that. What I'm, I'm hoping that doesn't get eroded when they start fighting for world championships. Because yeah. <laughs> I'm sure a couple of those guys will be fighting for world championships in future. Oh, yeah. um, but I like to see that camaraderie, which goes back to, the, you know, you'll think about the circus and that. That's what Formula One used to be. The drivers used to go on vacation together. They used to hang out together. Um you know, um, I, I just think as it became more and more about the teams um, and the money around the yeah. teams and the corporate thing, that sort of tended to go away. Um, you know, IndyCar, everybody's got the same base car to start with, um, you know, so they're all discovering it together. Um, 
I think that's part of it as well. I think also part of the thing is that IndyCar is they realize how damaged the series got mm-hmm. with the split years ago and actually, you know, working together and being part of the overall thing and realizing that IndyCar itself needs to be a cohesive whole, a good right. product. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I'm trying to imagine Nikki Lauda and James Hunt going on vacation together, and I can just see, like, Ed James, bring me a beer. Get your own beer. You're such an <laughs> a-hole. <laughs> it just the skit writes itself. Uh, any other th- – oh, Marcus Erickson finished 11th. He's, he's had a pretty good year so far. He hasn't been, like, in the top five of any race, really, but – He's qualified well. He qualified for Indy well. He's having a pretty decent year, I think. It doesn't hurt to have a um, to have a Chip Ganassi car this right. year, last couple of years. But yeah, he's doing well, and you know the McLarens are doing well. Patricia Ward's doing well. Oh yeah, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. So um, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing Lando Norris in an Indy car in 2024. <laughs> after he- How's he gonna make? I, I expect Lando to be in one of the to either be with McLaren forever and be winning championships or. Uh, mm-hmm. Or to go to Mercedes or Red Bull or Ferrari. What how, what do you think is going to happen to uh, to Lando? Uh, no, I, I can see him being at McLaren, but I can see him. Oh. He's already talked about the fact he wants to do other stuff. Okay. All outside right. of Formula One. So I can see him see. in a McLaren IndyCar at some point. Or... Could you see him at the Indy 500 kind of like Fernando did? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, he did the uh, he did the uh, virtual racing Indy 500 last year when oh, yeah. we were doing a lot of uh, and was did very well. So, yeah, yeah I can see him. Uh, doing that at some point. Well, they always cool. tease him about being the video game kid, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's played all the. He's so. raced since he was a baby on on video games. That these other people haven't. So he, I know he's the same age as some of, them, but he seems younger than all of them to me. He just seems know, like he's still, about he's, yeah, sixteen. He still looks like a pimply twelve year old to he me. He does. But, uh, very likable. He, he's very likable. Got a lot of great racecraft. I think he's. Uh, I think he'll be the next British world champion after uh, when Lewis retires. So that would be that cool. Is. Any uh, last thoughts about Indy or anything you want to say about uh, about the two races uh, before we wrap up? No, I just, I think going back to earlier on, I think it was just an interesting contrast with the two marquee events. Um, you know, um, I think it was just, you know, Monaco was was interesting more for what happened off track and the strategy stuff. And I think Indy was just a much better spectacle race. Um, it may not have the glamour, it may not have the glitz, um, but from a pure racing point of view, I think Indy was the was the better event. Oh yeah, and I've said this for like two years now, and I'm going to continue saying it until things change. Alexander Rossi, it is time to get the voodoo pre- priest in and sacrifice the chicken because <laughs> you have got to do something. You can't. N- nobody has this bad of luck every race. You you know Rossi. He's two years now, going on two years off his pace of where we thought he would be. We thought he would have. He hasn't won even as many races. He's like only run like six races ever. You'd think yeah. by now he'd be up to like twenty or something. He's only won like six races. It's I don't. Under, he's a way too good of a driver to keep having the the fortune that he keeps having. That's. I think he needs to change teams actually. But. Oh well, he had his chance. Yeah, had, I know. I know he did, and he stuck with Andretti. So he could have been in that uh, fluorescent Menard car, I think, if uh, if he played his cards right. I don't know if I want him in that car or not, but uh, that I don't know. Just just sometimes a change is good, you know. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. Well, I guess we will leave it there then, and uh, I guess we'll come back when we have another race or another movie. Have we got a have we got a movie on the horizon that we need to do? I can't think offhand. Uh, yeah, we were going to do Days of Thunder next. Oh God! Oh, what I asked. Yeah, okay. All right. I'll, I'll, <laughs> you know, I I guess it is. I did grow up 15 minutes from Talladega, so I've been around NASCAR my whole life. I've just never liked it, but I guess I can. I guess I guess I can do Days of Thunder if we also do Talladega Nights. Do you want to do the two together? Oh, I don't. Oh, I, could we? Should we? I don't know. We might have to discuss this. Okay. We'll All discuss. Right. We'll discuss off the air. All right, gang. Hope you guys okay. enjoyed this, and we will wrap it up. Thanks a bunch, Alan. Cheers, man. This has been a White Rocket Entertainment production.